All right, welcome to a brand new edition of Bella Hutman's Curse. We've got a wonderful episode for you today. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Steve Sutherland. Joined alongside me is Julian Amarante. Julian, how are you doing? A little bit under the weather, but I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And we've also got a, a, a guest host from way across the world. Uh, Frank Neshi joins us today. Frank, uh, welcome to welcome to the Curse. Good morning, gentlemen. Lovely to be here. So uh, today, our topic is something I think that's probably very near and dear to both Julian and, and, and Frank's hearts. Uh, it's the 1982 World Cup, specifically the match between Italy and Brazil. Um, now, before we begin, uh, Frank, whenever we have somebody new join us on the show, I always like to ask them, uh, what clubs do you support? What brought you to football? Oh, what brought me to football? Um I suppose my mother being a Juventus supporter, as many, many people from the South were because they, they um, moved north to work in, uh, a lot of them went to the work to the Fiat factories in, uh, in Turin, but a lot of them just went north to find work and they became Juventus supporters. So uh, um, I think my mother inherited that from a member of her family and I inherited that from her. Um, the 1982 World Cup consolidated me as a Juventus supporter. Um, basically due to the exploits of the Juventus players in that squad. Um, so I have been ever since, but that's not to say that I, I don't admire players from from other clubs. As, as Julian well knows, I carry a photo of Franco Baresi in my wallet. I still have that photo, Julian. Um, and I still I still carry the, the key ring that he gave me in 1993 on my on my car keys, and I still have that. Oh, um, so locally here in Australia, I, I follow Sydney FC. I'm a foundation new member. Um, I go to matches as, as often as I can. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, it's really about supporting the league locally. And I urge people, you know, whether they support a Premier League team or a team elsewhere, support your league locally, um, whether you're being Canada, the US, wherever. Uh, it, it's something that. I do not only for myself, but for future generations. If we don't, the, the Australian League has died many deaths over a, a number of decades, and it's been revived and resuscitated and put through the defibrillator. Um, this time, we're we're fairly adamant that you know it's going to survive and it's going to thrive. And you know, the Sydney FC community is a vibrant one, um, and, and we're really determined to make football work here. That uh, is incredible. We actually talk a lot we we don't talk too much on the pod about uh aussie football but julian and i talk about it I, I would think actually a lot more than people probably realize and we probably do a lot of people a disservice by not bringing it up more often that's fair that's a very fair thing it's good to hear your voice old friend uh, frank and i go way back when it comes to questions of football uh, i would say like uh almost like the early 1990s uh, we connected uh, on the old, old RSS uh, discussion group about football. And uh, I, I love the fact that we connected over the fact at that time that it was over a discussion. Uh, he came to my defense, as I said, that Spanish defenders were among some of the worst defenders ever. And, and I thought that was one of the most wonderful things. And we became pals, even though he's a Juventus fan. And uh, we've remained buddies ever since, even though I've hurled some horrible abuse at him for supporting that club. So I thank you for your patience, my friend. 
No, that's no problem. You know, as a as a person who supports a club that was formerly owned by Berlusconi, you know, you, you know rocks and glass houses, my friend. <laughs> I guess so. That's true. So, shall we get started, my friends? Absolutely. Yeah. So let's jump into it. So, Julian, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of swing to you a little bit on this one. Uh, as our listeners know, I was not alive during this World Cup. Uh, so I'm going to lean on you both pretty heavily with, uh, a lot of the questions. So Julian, why don't you jump in? Give us a bit of the background of, of the 1982 world cup. First of all, Stephen, thank you very much for making us feel extremely old at this point, but carry on. <laughs> Thanks. I, uh, I just want to say from the beginning that I consider this probably the greatest football match ever played. A lot of people would, would agree with me. A lot of people who are a lot smarter than I am when it comes to football. Uh, it is definitely the greatest match I have ever seen, uh, unless I account uh, AC Milan's demolition in the 1994 Champions Cup or over the super team Barcelona 4-0. But I still think that this was an extraordinary game. Um, essentially, this is the 1982 FIFA World Cup. It's the 12th World Cup played in Spain. Um the tournament was won by Italy, who defeated West Germany at the time, not Germany, 3-1 in the final, and it was held in Madrid. It was Italy's third World Cup, but it was their first since 1938. And the tournament, essentially, it was, it was remarkable on many fronts. Uh, the format, and I'll get into that in a little bit, in, in, in a second, but it was also like, you know, some, it was, there were some firsts, for example, it was the first penalty shootout in a world competition. Think about that for a second. Okay. Um, and that was 1982, and it was the 12th World Cup. It was also uh, just the third time where the semifinalists were all European. And I think we had another, another. yeah, this time it was, again, uh, in the World Cup in Russia this year, where um, I would say that that was also all European. I'm willing to say, just on a note on this, I'm willing to say that... This was the second last great World Cup. In my opinion, the last great World Cup was the 1986 World Cup, and I think after that it just kind of went downhill. But that's for you guys to decide. That's just my opinion. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty much the kind of general overview. The format uh, was unique, and, and, it, and it bears mentioning because at this point, it kind of sets the stage, and this is why this game becomes so important. And we'll get into that a little bit later, or as we advance, it'll become clear. The 1982 competition was unique in the sense that the first round, you had your group stage, but there was only like six groups of four teams. And remember, this is a time when two points were awarded for a win, one for a draw. Okay, and then they had goal difference used to separate the teams who were on equal points, not the kind of uh, uh, the, the, the team that won the game when they played. And what was also significant about it was that the top two teams of each group advanced into the second round, and among the, the 12 remaining teams, uh, uh, they were then among those teams, it was actually, I think, the, the, if I'm correct, the fourth best, what is the three... No, for the four best third place teams also advanced. So, and when they advanced, what was amazing was they advanced also into another round robin stage where you had four groups of three, and each team played each other in a round robin. And 
to be honest with you, the, with the champion, well, the, the one, the one who won each of the round robin went to a semifinal. And in my opinion, and I'd like to get the feedback from YouTube. I think that that's the way the World Cup should go. I think there should be a round robin in the first round, and then another round robin, and then you determine perhaps maybe the quarterfinalists or the semifinals. Any, any, any uh, objections or comments, fellas? Probably not these days. I mean, given that they're expanding the numbers of teams to, you know, 5 billion, um, you know, the World Cup will last, you know, probably 57 years. I mean, they're saying the next World Cup's going to be 32 teams or, or more than that or something like that. It's, it would be unwieldy. Um, and I think that in a sense, there's too much of a second chance saloon for, for too many teams. I mean, there's, there's probably a, a few too many teams that shouldn't be there as it is. Um, but diluting diluting that further, I think, is probably not a great idea. Oh, you think it dilutes it, Frank? See, because I would have thought that it makes it more difficult. Uh, and um, you know, because another round robin stage. But now that I think about it, you're right. It, it is a kind of second chance, right? You know, it's almost like that kind of home and away golf rule, right? Yeah. I mean, the World Cup already goes for a month, and you know, the, the clubs already grumble in terms of. You know how how early they need to release players before the World Cup, and then the preseason after the World Cup. I, I think, you know, it's always been a month long tournament. If they stay within that time frame, it'll it'll maintain um, the, the clubs buy in and and the the public's buy in. If you start to drag it out longer than that, it, it just um, I think it'll start to lose a bit. I wouldn't but mind I seeing this format in like European qualifying, though. I think we always yeah. complain about how how terrible the European qualifying is and you can eliminate a lot of those teams early on and kind of give teams with higher seeding into different groups. So maybe kind of redesigning the qualification format in Europe uh, and maybe even in other areas, uh, this could work. Well, I think this already happens in Asia because I think there's, a, there's already teams eliminated for the next World Cup. Um, they play sort of, pre-tournaments for, for much, much lower-ranked teams. So you'll find, you know, there's there's probably a few teams already eliminated in, you know, Pacific Islands and uh, uh, small areas of the Middle East um, that are already out. Yeah, and I, I think we've kind of mentioned this before, and I actually think that this might even merit a pod of its own, is that I actually think in places like Europe there should be a two-division uh, uh, system. Uh, so, in terms of the qualification, because I don't believe that, like, I don't believe teams like the Faroe Islands or Liechtenstein or Gibraltar, you know, merit playing, uh, you know, the, the super powerhouses because that's just a gift, right? And I think they should have like a promotion relegation in the qualification. Hockey has something like that with regards to their World Cup and the Olympics. You know what I mean? So, but you know. At the end of the day, it's about how many matches you can get and how much money you can make from the gate receipts. So, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't hold my breath on these matters. So let's move on to the first round. So, Julian, give me your thoughts on uh, kind of how how the first round went, and then we'll discuss. Let's discuss it a little bit. Yeah, really quick. I mean, what I'm going to tell you is just basically what happened in Italy's group and then in Brazil's group, rather than go through the whole World Cup. Because, yeah, it, it's kind of it kind of explains in many ways 
uh, again, the backdrop to, to, uh, to the match and the significance of, of the match that's played. In, Italy was in Group 1, and it was the first time that Cameroon was in the, in the tournament. And uh, Cameroon held both Poland and Italy to draws and actually were denied a place in the next round on the basis of having scored fewer goals in Italy, okay? Because both both teams were equal on side. And it was like Italy, basically, they played against Poland, Cameroon, and Peru, and they barely made it through. They drew every game, okay? And uh, and I, I, if I'm correct, I believe every team drew also. And Italy just had... had gotten through on the skin of its teeth. And uh, we all remember at the time that the Italian journalists, uh, and especially the Divorsi, uh, criticized the, the national team. They were ready to basically greet them at the airport with tomatoes. Uh, this was like, in, in, I remember in the Correrio dello Sport. Um, and uh, the, 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 the performances were uninspired. Uh, again, three draws. And also, the team was reeling from uh, a scandal in which some of the national players, number one, Paolo Rossi, were suspended for match fixing and illegal betting. Rossi, I believe, had, had actually received a two-year suspension, and he was completely out of shape. And the national manager Berezot took him on, and uh, you know, every, to, to everybody's surprise, and said, "Well, how can you have this criminal and this guy who's out of shape?" And that yeah, was his starting striker, and he had just performed poorly in the opening round. Brazil, on the other hand, uh, had Zico, Socrates, Falcao, Eder, among that's just that's just four. The, the team was stacked. Uh, they had a, a firepower that was immense. Their coach Tela Santana returned back to a football that they played back in the 1958 70s when they won the World Cup. They brushed aside the USSR, even though it was two one. There was a goal scored in that game. You can see it on YouTube where Ader blasts it like 20 meters. Okay, It's, it's an unbelievable goal. Um, you also see they, they, they just squashed Scotland. They squashed New Zealand. And uh, they went on in goal difference. And Brazil were like the overwhelming favorites to win this tournament. Everybody was just terrified of them. Okay, So what ended up happening was the way the draw ended up, because the draw was determined, and I, I don't want to get into into this and bore you, but there was no kind of like draw out of a hat for the next round. And you know, like the World Cup is kind of already determined. If you finish in such a place, you're going to meet such and such a team, right? So it just so happened that when they went to the second round, and there was the group stage, okay, Italy got drawn in Group C with Tele Santana's Brazil, the super team. And Argentina with the young, burgeoning Diego Maradona, okay? And it was unbelievable because in the opening match, Italy met Argentina, and Italy basically, I mean, the score was 2-1, but it was flattering to Argentina because I remember watching that game. Italy basically just dominated Argentina. Um, and uh, they basically moved on. It was, it was, it was amazing, uh, the defending that took place, especially... Uh, Claudio Gentile, whose last name translates into gentle, essentially just marked the Maradona out of the game, and he brutalized, I mean brutalized them throughout the game. It's unbelievable to watch. And then, in the match between Argentina and Brazil, Brazil demolished Argentina 
Uh, Maradona kicked the Brazilian player, uh, João Batista, in the groin and was sent off in disgrace in the 85th minute. And they're setting up this final match between Italy and Brazil. So because Brazil had three goals versus, and one, and Italy had two, uh, if they remained, if there was a tie in the match, Brazil would go through and Italy uh, would not. So essentially, Italy had to win the game. Just one aside, uh, uh, from the Brazil group stage, it produces one of the great sort of legendary World Cup stories, and I'm, I'm not even sure it's true. The game between Brazil and Scotland. Um, yes. Scotland actually scored first in that game. I believe it was the defender That's David right. Mayer. That's right. And That's right. In, instead of congratulating him, the legend goes that these teammates come up to him and said, why the hell did you do that for? You're only just going to piss them off. And then Brazil <laughs> went ahead scored four goals. Yeah. Yeah. When they, they, I, I remember that match. I remember the goal when Scotland scored. And it was like, you if you were among Scottish fans, you would have thought they won the World Cup then. Oh, it was a great goal. Yeah, it was a fantastic goal too. Uh, but they were they were something to behold. Like they just overwhelmed people. They frightened people. So I mean, I, I want to get to the match. Okay. I was going to say uh, before we get to the match, I kind of wanted to ask you both. So watching Italy kind of labor to these three draws, what was like? You, you spoke about how the journalists were speaking in, in the Correa della Sport, but how how were you feeling? Because you saw these matches. How were you feeling during these matches? Were you expecting anything from Italy any further? Did you expect them to go out? What was what were your feelings? Well, for me, this would have been my, my, my I would say, second and a half World Cup. And from the way it was always explained to me, was that Italy always struggled in the opening round, no matter what. And it, it, it was something akin to saying that Italy would lower their levels and they would use the opening, the opening round as kind of like a, a training camp, okay, believe it or not. And the frustration was immense. Like, you can imagine how we, uh, you know, you can hear Italian fans, how, how the frustrated and, uh, I don't even know, helter-skelter they go, when uh, um, you know when when they when they play these when we watch these matches, it's like it's kind of like an existentialist crisis. This was it was brutal because you know everybody you know Cameroon was in and they represented Africa, and I think it was a shock to everybody just at the level of how great African football was because African footballers were not predominant throughout Europe in the early eighties and the seventies as say they are now. Okay. Uh, they 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 came out of nowhere. And back then, it wasn't like now where the game was globalized, right? The game was very much still national. I mean, you had like you know Falcao play for Roma, and you had players who like you know you, you did have like you know some foreign nationals playing on teams, but nothing like it is considered today. You might have like one foreign national on your team, maybe two, maybe three. Um, and you like it was strict the, rules back then, pre Bosman, Julian. Yeah, totally, totally. And it was actually more like like almost fifteen to twenty years before Bosman. And yeah. African footballers were playing basically in their local countries, in their local clubs. They, they had not made uh, substantial headway into into, Euro, into the European leagues at this point. So everybody kind of figured that, wow, Cameroon, this should be a walkover. And instead, we were they were shocked by how well they played. But then again, also Peru, 
was not considered at that point. That was perhaps one of the weakest Peruvian teams that had ever uh, made it to the World Cup. Um, there was actually remarks, I mean, like some of the most racist remarks that, you know, because Peru was in the midst of a civil war at the time uh, with uh, Senderos Luminos, and they were saying something to the effect of these guys look like they're starving to death, you know, and they couldn't get past. And then Poland, even though Poland has a very, very strong tradition, and they had Boniak, and they were very Boniak, good, yeah. Yeah, Italy should have dominated. And it got so bad, Steve, that the coach, Benazot, basically declared uh, a complete media ban. One okay? of the first, too. Yeah. One of the first media blackouts ever. Yeah, and like there was no, no, no reporters allowed to talk to any of the players. The players were not allowed to talk to any of the players, uh, uh, the press. As a matter of fact, if I'm even correct, Frank, and you might help me, I even think he cut them off from their families. Like he cut them off from their wives and, and their not families. Sure about that. I'm not sure about that one, but the media definitely. It was definitely yeah. one of the, the first, if not the first, complete media blackout from a World Cup squad. And because, you know, there was all this pressure at the time, right, And about, about uh, you know, the, the, the betting scandal and the match fixing. So what was amazing about it, too, and I think that what's also something that's very important to know about this, I mean, because, like I said, it's rich details, and it's such a backdrop. That's why the game becomes such, such uh, an extraordinary thing. It's not just the match itself was stupendous, but it was also the fact that you had all of these kind of uh, – you know, little rumblings here and there and all these things creating this background and they created the kind of like the perfect storm. And at that time, if I remember correctly, uh, people were just outraged uh, by, by Italy's performance, you know. And, and you got to remember, this is also a time before social media. And you could just imagine what, like, you know, imagine what the pressure is like now if the pressure was like this during the end, you know. Yeah, the, uh, here it was, I suppose it was a little bit different. Um, I mean, we're on the other side of the world. This is the first World Cup that I remember. Um, I think it was probably one of the first World Cups that was actually televised live here in Australia. So it was, I mean, the final happened um, a day after my 10th birthday. So I was very young. But listen, I remember it like yesterday. There was no need to, uh, no need to say whether I can remember it. I remember it perfectly well. The, the feeling here was different. The 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 team was never meant to do anything. A lot of the squad were had, was a hangover from the 78 World Cup. Um, there was no real hope that they were actually going to do anything here. The group stage sort of confirmed it. But the win against Argentina, you know, we're not playing great, but, but they're still there. And there were, I think there was a, a sort of a lingering hope that if we get past Brazil, and this apparently was some sort of great Brazil, if we get past these guys, the door's open. Yeah. You know? um, the fact that we're playing that badly but still there, um, you know, there was there was this thread of hope. Yeah. Um, and the social implications, and I'll probably just get to this now, the social implications of this World Cup for, for people here, especially the immigrant population. I mean, I, I experienced pretty bad racism growing up here, even though I was born in Australia, obviously, to Italian immigrant parents. And I can't even imagine the, the racism that my parents experienced, especially after they emigrated. Um, the social implications uh, of this game and winning the World Cup was that the immigrant Italian especially, and it, it sort of flowed on to the other immigrant groups, they could hold their head up. 
You know, yeah. we're world champions at something. You know, this, you know, we're good at something. We we have a place in the world and we have a place here. And there was begrudging respect. I mean, now you can't walk five metres without tripping over, a you know, a plate of pasta in an Italian restaurant. Um, and the racism that, you know, was reserved for the European immigrant of, of the 50s, 60s and 70s is now reserved for refugees, you know, being a, a big right-wing government uh, election issue agenda item. Um, but back then it was, it was you know, it was us. Um, and the stuff I copped as a kid, no one, no one should cop. But this... This did wonders, and this is why this game, this World Cup, is, is close to my heart um, much more than the uh, uh, much more than 2006. Although, as much as I loved 2006 for, for many reasons, especially Australia being there, um, but this is this is far more close to my heart. It had so many, and the footballing implications, which we'll we'll talk about later. Um, you know, it, it opened the door on the on the dominant Italian era of the, the 80s and, and, and 90s and early 2000s until the economic collapse. But the social implications here were, were huge. Uh, but no, we, we, we had hope that, you know, we're playing this badly and we're still there. So if we can get past this Brazilian team, who knows? Well, I just wanted to say, yeah, in terms of, of, of a pride, I, I can say the same thing. Um, apparently, you know, within, within the, um, within the, Italian community that I grew up in. I grew up in a very, 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 um, shall I say, uh, strong and rich Italian community. And this basically was something in terms of pride that just rippled through everywhere. And uh, it was amazing because it was also something that, you know, fathers would pass on to their sons. And, and you could see that uh, the whole family, you know, uh, it, it went across even gender at the time. Uh, but it was something, too, that all of a sudden you realize that all these Italians who were a little bit older than you had this kind of historical memory and all of this really exotic knowledge about tactics and players and mythologies and it was it was it was a tremendous thing to kind of experience at the time and and, and with Frank like you know I, I'll, I'll just add a little bit more for us it was uh, it was very much in the sense that if we got past Brazil we kind of felt oh yeah because we knew in advance that we would meet Poland and it was kind of, you know, it was kind of like establishing, yeah, I think we're going to make it to the final, right? And, uh, you know, people, the anticipation was just increasing and increasing and increasing. So, I mean, it was really something, you know. So, uh, I mean, uh, I think before, we, I, if I'm just going to check with, with, with our man, Steve, uh, I think we're going to take a break before we get into the match, Steve. Yeah, so we're going to yeah. take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll, we'll jump into the match. All right, so we're back from our break. We're going to jump right into the match. So, Julian, 1982, uh, Brazil versus Italy. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to be brief because uh, I like where the conversation is going in terms of uh, the observations and analysis and even the discussion of social implications. So the match is actually between Brazil and Italy uh, against pitted this kind of, you know, unbelievable attacking machine of Brazil under Tele Santana against this steely-eyed Italian defense, 
which I actually think, to be honest with you, is a bit of a misnomer, and perhaps we can discuss this. Because um, Italy was defensive, but this team also was incredible in attack, right? Uh, the majority of the game was played basically around the Italian area uh, uh, with the Italian midfielders and the defenders returning the kind of repeated, you know, set volleys of Brazilian shooters. I mean, it's really amazing how they would stand in front of these shots by Zico and Socrates and Falcao. And, uh, you, you know, it was amazing because Gentile was basically, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, was assigned to mark the Brazilian striker Zico. And he earned a yellow card early in the match which therefore made sure that he had a suspension into the second into the semifinal. Rossi opened the score with, uh, when he headed, uh, like, like we're talking like five, six minutes into the game, heads this beautiful cross by Cabrini, and you can see that the Brazilian wing-backer just totally blows his marker, but it's not even that. Rossi just had this anticipation of being at the right place at the right time. It was like the... the the most sublime opportunist ever I, I've ever seen. And he just, bang, tagged the ball in. The second goal, to me, is, is this incredible, unbelievable display of, of, of skill by, by Socrates, who, who gets this beautiful pass from Zico. He just storms back and takes the shot and, like, clinically puts it past Dino Zoff, the goalkeeper. Uh, seven minutes later, in the 25th minute, Rossi basically intercepts one of the most brutal mistakes by the Brazilian uh, midfield junior. He intercepts this. No, actually, it's Caracca. Sorry. He intercepts a pass from, no, Cereso. I never get that right. Yeah, Antonio Cereso. Yeah, Cereso. And he, and he just drills this shot home, and he makes it 2-1. And it goes into half. But, the, but I'm going to get into this I mean, a little bit later. Brazil, basically, they don't even look phased by this. Like, they, they basically have this attitude. Yeah, sure, go ahead, score two, score three, score four. We're going to score one more than you, okay? And they don't even look phased by this, right? No. Uh, and, like, if the Italians just basically drag them and drag them, and you can see that they're counterattacking and really pressuring the, 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 the Brazilian, I would say, non-defense. They're exposing that Brazil has really nothing behind this extraordinary midfield. And then I mean, even though Italy is still defending these massive attacks, on the 68th minute, Falcao, who plays, uh, uh, who played with Roma at the time, collects another beautiful pass by, by Junior, uses Cerezo as a dummy, runs this kind of like distracted thing across three defenders, and just blasts this shot from about 20 yards, and it's 2-2. And at this point, you know, 68 minutes, people are going, it's drawn, there's no way. There's no way it's done. Italy's cooked. And if you watch the game on YouTube, you can even hear the announcers. They're pretty much saying, ah, you know, Italy's done, Italy's done. And, uh, you know, because they go through on the goal difference, Brazil. Like, Brazil just needed the tie. Italy needed the, the, the victory. But in the 74th minute, unbelievable. This poor clearance. And again, once again, the Italians just pounce on the mistake. And uh, it's this beautiful shot that I think was taken by Tardelli. And it just happens to land right on, on Rossi's foot, and Rossi clinically just slots it past the goalkeeper, and it's 3-2. And, and everybody's just stunned at this. And I, I'll, I'll never forget it. That's Rossi now with a hat trick at this point. And 
it, you know, Antonioni scores a goal which looks kind of offside, and it was just, but it's really, it, 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 it is, you're not sure, but it's called offside, no argument. And then, within like, I mean, the dying moments, Dino Zoff makes this miraculous save to deny Oscar a goal. I think it was like there was about a minute I watched the game. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not going to confess. I mean, I'm going to confess. I'm not, I'm not ashamed of this. I was watching the game in the Toyota dealership as my car was getting serviced. And I'm jumping up like as if this is a game I haven't seen before. I, I'm like just like a second about like rolling on the ground in, in ecstasy. It's just this amazing display. I just want to go into the things before I hand this back to Frank. Um, the team, the players on the team, I, Italy played basically a 4-4-2. And I want to kind of name the, the, the starting 11. And, and uh, essentially, Zoff in that, 40 years old, captain. I think he's 41, actually, okay? Antonio Cabrini, unbelievable defender. Golovati, who gets injured in the 34th minute, uh, who was having, in those 34 minutes, the guy basically is just stopping everything. Claudio Gentile, who is an animal, but, you know, I mean... You One of the greatest misnomers in professional sport. I mean, if you if you look up any hard man footballer list and he's not in it, discarded immediately as irrelevant. Exactly. This guy makes, you know, I mean, everybody talks about Sergio Ramos and Pepe, you know, being hard men. This guy would handle those guys easily. Uh, and the they, amazing part? The amazing part is he only got one red card in his entire career, and that was that wasn't even for a foul. I think it was something. I think it was a handball as a second yellow card for a handball in a European Cup match. Otherwise, he was never sent off, which I find mind blowing. I mean, today in today's rules, he would have had about fifty red cards. And in fact, in this in this game, he gave what I would consider a stone cold penalty way when when he basically ripped Zico's shirt off well, his back. I want to talk about that later, Frank. I, I totally want to come to that point. Uh, I mean, I also, I, what is also me, what I also like about, about Gentile is his mother was Algerian, which makes, a, makes, makes it even that better. Uh, and then you had perhaps one of the greatest sweepers after Beckenbauer, Gaetano Shirea, uh, just unbelievable. Uh, Giancarlo Antonioni, who played most of his career, I think all of his career in Fiorentina. Uh, Gabriele, uh, Gabriel Oriale, another hardworking. To me, Marco Tardelli, one of the most underrated players in the history of this game. Uh, I think he's... Love he goes, Absolutely think, love him. Yeah, one of the greatest midfielders ever to play the game. Uh, Bruno Conte, who played for Roma, this guy had the skill of, of, of a South American. It was unbelievable. Fabio Graziani, uh, Francesco Graziani, never really did anything for me, but he was kind of a, what they called a poacher. And then you had Rossi, because they both played this. Graziani and Rossi did not play strikers. They played the center forwards back then. Um, when you get, and then when you get to Brazil, listen to this. Listen to this name, okay? Of course, the goalie was Perez. You have Leandro, okay? Oscar, Luisinho, uh, Toninho Cerezo, Junior, Socrates, Zico, Eder, Falcao, Serginho. Where are you going to find a starting 11 like that nowadays? That, that this is like, you know, I mean, this is unbelievable, right? And uh, the manager, of course, is Tela Santana. And the way that they played, they lined up, they had... Uh, essentially, Oscar, Luisinho, Toninho as central halves, okay, and Leandro as a right back, and Leandro and, and Junior as as the other wing back, 
And these guys would just maraud up and down the wings. You had Zico who played the 10, kind of like a regista back in those days. And he was kind of like more like not so much of a striker. Either as a left midfielder, Falcao as a right midfielder, and Serginho as a center forward. And the way they lined up was Italy basically was conventional 4-4-2, whereas Brazil lined up as a 4-2-2-2. And, and, and you would think that with that, they would not have any width. But yet the way they played is they had nothing but width. You know what I mean? Um, so, Frank, I want to put this to you. Um, what were your thoughts, opinions, and observations of the match? Uh, I've got a couple. Um... Brazil, were they as good as everybody says? I, I've got questions over that defence. Um, the defence for me, I mean, forget I mean, forget the rest of it. The midfield is for the ages. I mean, junior Socrates, Cerezo, who went on to have a uh, you know, fantastic career at Sampdoria. Um, Zico, Eder, Falcao. The midfield and the, and the sort of the attacking mids were, you know, for the ages. I don't think the defence was that great. I have my question marks over Perez in goal. Serginho had a terrible game up front. I mean, if they had, uh, say, a Careca or um, a Ronaldo or a Romario, um, you know, they would have walked this in. Um, so I question, I question whether this is the greatest Brazil, but it's certainly the greatest midfield and greatest attacking midfield of all time. That's not an issue. Um, Italy Italy played like a team who knew this was their last chance at everything. This was Gentile, for as brutal as he was, you know what? He played this game in, I, I would put, other than ripping Zico's jersey right off his back, which if you watch it, like he literally did, there's a gaping hole. Like he literally rips half of it off. Um, other than that, he played, I would put his game in that really tough but fair category. He Flying headers, tackles, he was brilliant. He was everywhere. This was a desperate man, desperate man. And yeah. the others played the same way. They left nothing in the tank. They were running on fumes by the end of it. Paolo Rossi, what again, I mean, I hadn't sat down and watched this game for a long time and I can't because it's, it, it brings up too much for me. I can't watch this every day. <laughs> he was everywhere. What amazing is his work. He wasn't just standing up front waiting to be fed the ball to score goals. He right. was everywhere. Yes, yes. He was yes. in midfield. He was an attacking mid. He was on the wing. He was a defense. He was everywhere. This was a man on a mission of redemption. He had no. been done for two years for match fixing. This was his last chance. He hadn't scored in the group stages. He hadn't scored against Argentina. This was his last chance. And the man becomes a legend by scoring three here, two in the semi-final against uh, Poland, and one in the final. And the space of three games scores six goals and becomes golden boot. Um, but the desperation, the desperation, you see it, and, and this is their last chance. And in by you know by winning this game, they become legends of of, of all time. The tracking all over by the players is something incredible. It, it really is. Like you know. What what strikes me about it, and I, I, I know I sound like a broken record, but what strikes me about it is the quality of football, okay, is overwhelmingly superior to what we are watching today, okay? 
I, I mean, uh, what, 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 what I see there is like just like it's a different, entire, uh, entirely different aesthetic. I mean, Brazil has this confidence like about them as they're holding the ball, that they're actually walking at times as they're moving the ball. And, you know, to me, that's when the game is at its most beautiful, is when the players are actually walking and then throwing these passes. And it was they were just letting the ball do the running rather than everybody else doing the running. The Italians were just extraordinarily disciplined in, in their positional play. Like, it, like, they rarely, rarely lost their man or marker. They were obstinate in defending. You know, like I said, in general, the footballing was just much better than it is today. But it was the- different, Julian. I think you need to. And I think for the for the sake of our younger viewers, I'm sorry, younger viewers, younger listeners, um, it was a different football. Um, well, it wasn't. As, it wasn't as fast paced. It was probably no. a little bit more technical. Um, but if they're expecting sort of the the, the you know. And I know you call them track stars. If you, they're expecting the fast pace of, of, say, the Premier League today, you're not going to get that. Um, it's it's a tactical game. It's a technical game. It certainly was a lot slower. I mean, look, looking at it today, it's a lot slower than I well, remember it. These uh, guys could never play at the height of their powers. These players would never, would, would, would never ever get beyond on, on, on a first division team. They would never get positioning. Uh, I mean, look, I mean, I'm going to say this. Despite the fact that we are witnessing the era of Messi and Ronaldo, yeah. both of whom rank among the greatest players ever, and, and it's truly amazing to watch these fellas. I mean, I'm not going to yeah. say that. The game has truly moved from beauty to duty. And, you know, like there's this wonderful article, which I'll post on the group, written no, by... Let me get to this, and then I, you know, I'll, I'll give you this one. There's this wonderful article that I'll post on the board uh, about this match written by my favorite writer, Jonathan Wilson, who is just mm. prolific. And, you know, and he talks about basically, you know, he calls it the day, not the day that football died, but the day that naivety in football died, right? And he says that essentially what, what happened is that was the day that they moved into a, a system and mentality, okay? Because... It was it was so important that you know there was still a place for great individual t- attacking talents. There was still an importance on individual expression, but they had to be incorporated into something that that everybody knew. Okay, and uh, you know, and 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 everybody worked together and covered. But in truth, you know, the argument would be made, and this kind of dovetails into much of our podcasts that we've had. You know, this had already happened, I think, in the 70s with the free-flowing style of the kind of total football in the 70s. Because if you actually, you know, there's actually some books that have been written about it where they say that, you know, those in the 1970s, the victories that Holland and Germany were, were, were producing uh, basically forced Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay to kind of redef- redefine their ideas of football and return to a kind of, like, again, attacking style. And, you know... I'm serious. I say this, and and I will defend it to the time. You can say that it's different. I say it's better. And ironically, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that nobody was able to know each other's styles. It still preserved kind of individual national styles. Nobody could follow the other team and have the kind of information available. Like now, nowadays, you know, before matches, players are prepped left, right, and center about 
how this guy plays when he gets the ball here, how this guy plays that. Back then, you didn't know what your opponents were going to do. So you can imagine a Claudio Gentile marking a Zico. Like, he had to basically, you know, improvise on the spot, which makes his performance absolutely stunning when you think about it. And, I mean, I really, truly believe that um, the game is, is, is a technocracy now. Uh, even though there are systems that were being played between both these teams, they still allowed for the, the beauty of individual expression. That's I agree my with you. There's a greater there's a greater element of surprise because you're right. I mean, someone can just post a lineup on on Facebook, and you know you know, you know what you know what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Um, is was there were there not systems back then? Some people might argue that you know total football of the Ajax was a system. I mean, it was just a system that accommodated eleven players at once rather than yeah, one exactly. or two. Um, was it, is Messi really playing in a system? Do you, do you harness that guy in a system? I mean, the team's probably built around him, but is he in a system? Um, I would say so. a there's a Barcelona way of playing, but you can't, you can't hedge this guy into a box and say, you score your 40, 50 goals a, a, a season. I mean, you, you can't, you can't bottle that guy up. For me, I mean, I know the Jonathan Wilson article that you're referring to. For me, the naivety, I think the naivety there, I, I don't necessarily agree, agree with the article. What I think is what died on that day was the sense of entitlement. That's this entitlement point. that Brazil had this great team and therefore was going to win. You know, every World Cup, um, you know, this team is the favourite. That team is the favourite. You know what? And 99% of the time, possibly with the exception of France in the last World Cup, the favourite does not get up. Um, you know, this this sense of entitlement, and Brazil have found it hard since then. Yes, they've won a couple of World Cups since then, but, you know, the thrashing of the thrashing of Brazil 7-1 by Germany, it, you know, on home turf. Um, Germany went in there with no fear. There, were, there was no entitlement there. And I think... This game destroyed that. Um, yes. You know, I, I think without this game, people would have walked into a World Cup in Brazil just fearful. They just here have the trophy. I think this game destroyed that. And I think it destroyed the veneer of invincibility. It destroyed the sense of entitlement. I don't think. I think now nobody believes that anybody's entitled to anything. You know, you've got Iceland beating teams. You've got. The, the minnows taking on the big guys, and I think this game went a long, long way. Not that not that Italy was ever a minnow, but it was a minnow in the sense that this was a team that should not have beaten this Brazil. Well, Frank, I just want to rejoin her on the thing about the systems with Messi and how you bottle him. Uh, this is kind of important, in my opinion, is that Messi came in the system in La Masia, and all those players came up together. And I would argue that they did play exactly the same thing that Italy did. They played a system, but they knew that they had this, this commodity in Messi, and they built a team where they allowed, they built a team in a system where they allowed it to be basically around the, um, the individual brilliance and the individual expression of Messi. So, you know, you're right. You're right. You can't bottle that kind of genius. But at the same time, uh, if you if you put it within a system, it's a different it's a different matter. And right. I would say that in many ways, Barcelona under Guardiola was a return back to this kind of football. I would I would argue that you know with all kinds of uh, of of uh, uh, qualifications also, but at the same time, I could point to, to the tradition that he comes from. 
In any case, any system used is going to be cyclic. I mean, you use a system, so someone comes up with a system to counter that system. That system's dominant for a while, so someone else comes up with a different system to counter that system. The systems evolve, and eventually we're just going to go in a cycle. Um, I don't ever believe we're going to come up with a single way of playing that is dominant. I mean, otherwise games would come to a complete standstill because teams would cancel each other out unless, you know, the, the players on one side are completely uh, dominant over players on the other side. I mean, it's just going to be a cyclic evolution. Um, well, the game, the, the game's just going to, you know, it's going to continue to cycle. Um, in that's that what sense. Wilson says, right? That's what Jonathan Wilson says that happened in Italy is that everybody adopted Benetton's style so much so that it just became completely that everybody played against that, everybody. And what you got was you got a kind of like a stalemate soccer and also a kind of very, very banal, right? And I would argue that with the success of Tiki Daka and this kind of high press, I think that's what we're seeing now with a lot of football clubs is that they're all playing this kind of style. And I mean, I can name you right off the top of my head at least a dozen of football clubs just out of the premiership alone that have kind of tried to embark on this kind of like wide open passing, short passing, high pressing football. And I think, you know, I think it's it's just around the corner where you're going to see teams who are going to adapt and probably go, like you said, go back to a certain another kind of system. And, and we'll return maybe with a defensive counter-attacking. I mean, you know, you're seeing the kind of traditional 4-4-2 come back. I mean, in many ways, Ajax's victory over, over Real Madrid was kind of like uh, that. Mm. Uh, Manchester United has come back, you know, playing that old smash-and-grab kind of, you know, 4-4-2, you know, counter-attacking football. And look, they're, they're back to having success. So I, I, I think you're right. It is cyclical, but I, I, I think in many ways... I'm still going to say the, the football was much better back then because they allowed these systems to express individual talents. You know the, I mean? the styles of play will change according to the players you've got. I mean, you can play tiki-taka as much as you want, but if you don't have the players to play tiki-taka, it's not going to happen. Well, You'll have five players on the team playing tiki-taka and five players losing the ball because they can't hold it because it's coming at them at a 1,000 miles an hour. So guess what? When you've got that, you've got to change your system to accommodate what you've got so 11 players can play the same system. Well, so at the moment, they've got the players that play that. Well, when they don't have the players that play that, they'll play something else. Mauricio Sarri at Chelsea is the perfect example of this, you know? Well, I'd say Mourinho was a better example at United. That's why he got fired. Yeah, but, but Mauricio Sarri plays the tiki-taka where, where Mourinho was very much connected to the idea of counter-attack. And uh, the tiki-taka uh, at, uh, you know, I mean, you got N'Golo Kante, who's probably the best defensive midfielder in the world. And, and Sarri's response is, yeah, he's great, but not in my system, you know? Uh, so, I mean, you know, again, it's kind of a dogma, it's a dogmatic thing. Uh, that, that's, I think it's a dogmatic, systems can be dogmatic, but I will say that, again, I go back to my point, I think that the football was much better, even though they had systems, they still allowed for individual expression and freedom. And both those teams, Brazil and Italy, if you watch that match, exemplify it. Um, I'd like to turn this right now, if we can, to discuss some notable moments in the match, right? So, uh, what were yours? Before, actually, before we do that, we are going to have to take another break. I just want to make a couple comments first on the systems okay, discussion. Sure. Um, the the first thing I, I I would I would disagree with you again. I think nostalgia in this case is really dangerous. Um, 
I, I think there are teams and, and players out there that still offer you those opportunities of individual brilliance, not just Messi and, and Ronaldo. There are, I, I would say there are definitely players that can do it to the extent that we, that, that you would have seen in, in these other teams. Probably not. Um, but academies have changed. Uh, so I, I think there, there's a bit of a difference there too. You're taught a system from the start. Uh, so that I have, might. I have a rejoinder to this. I have a rejoinder to this. But uh, to me, your ahead. your nostalgia for for this football is dangerous because of how it would make you view football now. Like, well, I, I think I think football now is a technocracy, and I do believe in Galliano's beauty to duty. And I'll say this flat out: uh, the reason why you see brilliance today is because footballers now start in academies when they're six years old and basically are trained to be robots better trained robots. Uh, and I think that this starts in the late 90s. And this is one of the reasons why I've never I've never really seen Zinedine Zidane as one of the all-time top 10 greats. Because to me, Zidane was just a better trained robot than the other ones. You take, for example, Socrates. They even say it in the damn video. If you watch the, the, the video of, of the game, I love it. He goes, Socrates, oh, Hard drinker and a, high, and a heavy smoker, but yet he can still play. Those guys... And died an early death, mind you, but that's okay. Just a minute. It comes to the question of aesthetics, okay? Now you, you have basically guys who are paid millions of dollars. You have kids who are brought up. These guys, soccer was almost like secondary in their lives, and yet they had extraordinary skill. They had extraordinary vision. These players were not just athletes. They were philosophers in the way that they viewed them. In the last 20 years, can you tell me one player, even among Messi and Ronaldo, that could come up to you and match a, 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 a Socrates, a Paolo Rossi, a Boniak, a Kubias? You know, they're just not there. Uh, I'm not going to agree with that, but I, I think there are. But I, yeah. I don't think that side of things gets a lot of airtime these days. It doesn't. It doesn't sell tickets. Yeah. I'm... Yeah. Well, I mean, I actually have a point here, and I think I'll leave this to maybe later. I think in many ways the rise of social media has destroyed the idea of creating mythology that once characterized this game. When you hear about, oh, absolutely, there's nothing. There's nothing hidden. I mean, for. Yeah. for... No, you, you can't hide. You can't hide. Absolutely, but that's not to say that's not to say that the, you know players don't have the qualities that you that you are espousing. Um, I, I think a lot of them are probably. Sorry, when you're you know, the 1954 Hungarian team dismantling Uruguay in the World Cup, and it was like one of the greatest matches ever played. You know, and you you look back; those guys had day jobs. Soccer was like 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 it was a pastime, and yet and and, and I would match. That 54 Hungarian team versus anyone in, like, in terms of that, the height of their powers over any of the, the clubs that are considered successful now. I'm sorry, you just not convinced me on the level of pure aesthetics and, and, and the level of, 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 of talent. The game is nowhere near. Like I've said, they're track stars. These are people who are basically trained from the time that they're five years old to be athletes, not footballers. And there's a big difference. 
no, I'm not going to buy that. And to some degree, I think everybody has to let that go. Otherwise, you're not going to enjoy the game for the rest yeah. of your life. Yeah. You're just going to become the grumpy old man on the couch saying, you know, you're going to be one of like one of the two Muppets in the in the uh, Stadler and Waldorf in the balcony saying, you know, get off my lawn. I urge you to watch those matches from the 1982 and 1986 World Cups or the 78 okay. World Cups. Now you can watch on YouTube. Julian, You'll see. i got to cut you off. we got to go to break. Uh, but we can continue this when we come back. All right, and we are back after a little bit of heated debate uh, not being recorded for this podcast. Um, so, Julian, you wanted to – you were asking uh, notable moments during the match. Yeah, so, I'll, I'll go I to you. But I think we could just back these around. For me, my, my first notable moment is Socrates' goal, um, which ties it at 1-1, seven minutes after, after Rossi's first goal. To me, this goal exemplifies how truly special these players were. Um, Brazil really overwhelmed its opponents, and 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 but they did not overwhelm Italy. Uh, even though they scored this goal, the Italians not only rose to the challenge at the time, but in fact actually turned the tables on Brazil. And that minute, that minute of that goal, to me, is is it's tremendous because, like, like Frank had said which I think is a very keen and brilliant observation. After they score the goal, it's a, it's a stunningly beautiful goal. And Brazil just walked back from it like as if it's nothing. And it's kind of like to them, it was, oh, yeah, we let you score the first one. We're going to tie. We're going to win this. You know what I mean? Whereas you can see the Italians, they just say, no, not today. And they turn around and come back. Because this brings me to my second notable moment, okay, is the 34th minute where – uh, Fulvio Colivati goes down with an injury, okay? And Fulvio Colivati at this point is having a marvelous game. And who do they put on? They put on this 18-year-old defender by the name of Giuseppe Bergoglio, who becomes an instant... Only his second cap. Yes, I'm just going to go into that, exactly. Who became an institution at Inter Milan, and in many ways he became an institution in Italian football. He comes on, and this is his second cap as an international. His only other appearance was a friendly match uh, against East Germany that Italy had in the lead-up to the World Cup as a, as a warm-up, and Italy lost. Okay, now I, I, now he was not only a baby at eight, like back in those days, eighteen-year-olds just did not get time on 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 first teams. But he was put also, and he had to essentially, okay, with all this like no international experience. They put him in the heart of the Italian defense to mark the heart of this brilliant, brilliant Brazilian midfield. And he puts on, in my opinion, one of the greatest footballing performances ever. But it's never recognized because he's a defender. Nobody remembers defenders. No. And, it's and, and he, also starts the, he also starts the final because Colovati's injured. Exactly. Um, but the thing is, you, you look at the squad. Look at the squad. There are a couple of non-playing members in that squad who I'm, I'm glad actually have World Cup winning medals, even though they didn't play a minute. A young guy named Daniele Massaro, huh. a, a Milan legend who was playing for Fiorentina at the time, but this was a go-to guy for Milan. You know, they needed a goal. Massaro comes off the bench, he scores. And also some other young guy named Franco Baresi. Yeah. Exactly. Me, the greatest defender of all time. 
um, you know, my favourite player of all time, even though he's a Milan player. This guy was on the bench. You know, yeah. these these are young kids who Benzot picked, and these people, as Julian said, became footballing institutions over the next twenty years. Yeah. Um, you know, so. This idea that, um, uh, you know, picking kids wouldn't win your stuff. I mean, Brzezot sort of did away with that somewhat. And, you know, no hesitation in throwing, so, you know, a guy for his second cap in probably the most important football game that Italy's had to play in 50-plus years is madness. And, and, I mean, the only other guy who i ever seen have this kind of success with young guys was Alex Ferguson at, uh, at Manchester United, you know, uh, almost – Two decades later, you know, um, and and I mean, it's it, it, it's it's marvelous. It's marvelous to see that Barry Bernzot took this this chance on this eighteen year old Giuseppe Bergami. And if you watch the match, he he he, he, he plays with such poise and confidence against you know this 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 advancing marauding midfield from Brazil. It's just unbelievable. Um, and for an eighteen year old, he has a mustache that looks like he's coming to clean the pool, but that's okay. <laughs> The other moment that happened just before half, uh, Gentile, the animal, uh, we talked about this already. He's already on a yellow card in this from match. The 14th, from the 14th minute, so he's got to be yeah. careful. But that still doesn't stop him from ripping Zico's jersey. But he has an incredible game. Flying headers, tackles everywhere. He's, he's unbelievable in this game. But that, 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 that moment, you know, you got to remember this, right? He's suspended for the, the semifinal. Yeah. He already knows this by the 14th minute, right? And if Italy ever go, to, go through, and he's already done this job of basically marking out Maradona out of the match, right? Mm. And he literally tears the shirt off Zico's back. Zico's turning to the ref, the official, and he's going, look, look, and he's showing it. And this was in the penalty area. It was a st- in, in, any other, in any other scenario, it's a stone cold penalty. Uh, totally, it's totally. And Zico's like pleading with the referee. He's got his shirt torn from like you know basically his armpit right down to his his waist, just torn to bits. And I, and I, and I thought it was unbelievable. Um, I mean, there's a, there are many moments in this match that are just examples of the brilliance of football generally, and also how much better again. I, I will go this, how much better the game was played back then, okay? Uh, everything from the general absence of diving, uh, exceptional officiating, respect for each other as opponents, respect for the officials. Um, there's also, you know, uh, uh, again, this idea of, like, systems coupled with individual expression. Uh, it was, it, you know, and back then they played for two points, and there was only two substitutions. And, and you could also pass the ball back to the keeper, and the keeper could pick it up with his hand. That was that was the last that was the last World Cup with that rule, or or actually. Oh no, 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 I think I think eighty six was. But then they came in with three points for a victory, which actually I think was a great rule, yeah. uh, innovation. And I I still think the idea of a third substitute. Uh, you know, they're thinking of maybe making four or five substitutions now. Back then, you can only have two substitutions. So, you, know? you actually do, uh, if, a, if a game goes into extra time, you do get a fourth substitution. But the rule looks like it's going to be changed. And I think there's something that you'll be happy with is that uh, you will not be allowed to make substitutions in injury time anymore. Which I think, I actually think that the, the, the rule should be that 
in the last five minutes of play, you're not allowed to make a substitution. But you know, that's that that that's just I, I think there's a lot of coaches will do that just to disrupt the rhythm. Uh, the other moment I have to I, I wanted to say just as an aside, Julian, before you go on with that. I think the other thing to mention, uh, now that you mentioned the back pass rule, I mean, uh, our younger listeners will certainly not have seen a game um, where uh, the defenders continually pass the ball back to the goalkeeper and the goalkeeper picks it up. Yeah. This is a game played with a lot of respect. I mean, I, yes. I remember seeing a lot of games as a child where a team is sitting on a 1-0 lead so the goalkeeper rolls it out to the defender. The defender holds it, holds it, holds it, passes it back to the keeper. Keeper picks it up, wastes another 10 seconds, throws it back yeah, to the yeah. defender, holds it. And this is why the back pass rule was, was um, brought in. Yeah. This game had none of that, okay? Exactly. Even, though, even though Italy was, was sitting on a one-goal lead, Zoff and then the Italian team and Brazil did absolutely none of that. Zoff had the ball. They played the ball and they got on with the game. There was none of this time wasting, even though there was, in that sense, there was great respect for the game in this in this match. Oh, very much in this match. I mean, like, and like, there's chippy tackles. I would actually go and say that I'd say Brazil actually was which was much more chippier than the Italians. Yeah. But there was a respect among each other. Like, you know, tackles weren't like like you know you see guys nowadays they they're there to rip somebody's leg off. Yeah. Despite the fact that that Gentile was this like you know very 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 like like the traditional hard man. But other, it, other than other than the Zico shirt ripping, you know what? I put this game in 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 the Gentile really tough but fair. He was brilliant. He well, was he brilliant. just amazing. Like you exactly tough but fair precisely. Um, the other thing I was going to say was uh, Zoff's extraordinary uh, save in in uh, within yes. like. Like I think there's like like a minute left, and uh, I'm not sure if it's Junior, uh, but he hits the ball, and it looks like it's going in. And out of nowhere, Zoff, 41 years old, just traps the ball, and it's amazing how he puts his body behind the ball to prevent it from because he knows that it's it's not one of those those shots that's gonna go clean in the net, but it might cross the line. So this way, he kind of just throws his body in behind the ball to keep the ball outside the line, and the Brazilian players go running towards the the, the, the goal and ready to celebrate. And Zoff picks up the ball, stands up, and he just you know waves his finger, going, "No, no, 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 that's no goal, people." You know, it's just amazing. It's just an amazing, amazing match. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. I, there's a few comments I, I want to make about not only the game, but I, I think the uh, of Italian football generally. What happened after this game? I mean, this opened the door for the for the era of Italian dominance of of the 80s and the in the 90s, which sort of died in the early 2000s with the Italian economic collapse. Um, you know, you, you've got this era of domination, or especially in the 90s, where Italian teams would be um, the finalists in in the European Cup and the UEFA Cup, and all the trophies would would come to Italy as well as, as, well as the Cup Winners Cup. Um, you know, other countries wouldn't get a look in. Um, in the pre-Bosman era, where you only have um, three foreigners, all the best players wanted to go to Italy. Um, yeah. You know, it's Spain now. It, it, it's Spain now. Well, no, at first it's get to Europe, then 
get to the Premier League. And then if you make it in the Premier League, you go to Barcelona or Madrid, or if you want a really big payday, you might go to PSG. Um, that seems to be the path now. But back then, you went to Italy. That was where you went. Totally. Uh, and that lasted till the till the economic collapse of, of the early 2000s. Um, and Serie A was an amazing league to watch. Italian football now, what's its role? Um, it's got a different role. I mean, it can't compete financially. Um, in the sense, like I said, the path is, is it's not a secondary league. I still see it as a top-tier league. So a young footballer might go in through Holland or, or Belgium and then go to Italy and then use that as a stepping stone into um into the Premiership, and then they might go to Real Madrid, or if they're exceptional, they might go from Italy straight to to, to Spain. After that, um, there's a couple of things that the Italian football still does exceptionally, even though it doesn't have the power um, that it used to. Number one, I think its scouting is still um, of excellent quality. Um, you look at you look at the transfer the players that have transferred to Allison. I think they, they bought him for fifteen million from Brazil, and they they passed him on to Liverpool for sixty seven. Um, Mo Salah, I'm sure they bought him for peanuts, oh, and yeah. they sold him to Liverpool for thirty plus. Even though you know, given what he's done at Liverpool, they, they would have said you know that that was a, a cheap transfer, but they still made a ton of money. Um, even this, he was a Fiorentina before he ended up at Roma. Right, so that might have to bounce around a few, a couple, a couple of Italian teams like Dybala. Dybala went from Palermo to Juventus, and now they're talking about him going everywhere else. Um, Piatek, this this uh, this player that Milan have just bought for fifty million. This is a rare example of an inter-Italian transfer, and if he kicks on, I've got no doubt that someone else will pick him up. But you know, I think Genoa picked him up for a bag of potatoes and a, you know, a few olives or something like that. And um, so I, I still think that their scouting and, and their identification of talent is, is still great. Um, the other thing that it, the Italian league has evolved, where it has evolved, is the elongation of careers. Um, they've got no, I don't know if they're doing something in sports science or they're managing their players, but they've got no qualms about bringing in the 30 plus player back um in the old days you know the player might have been finished by this by this stage um but you know look at edin's deco um even ronaldo to some degree even though i, I as a Juventus fan i object to you know paying 100 million plus 30 million in wages for someone of, of you know for any player really um they signed him to a four-year deal you know got no qualms you look at Del Piero, he played till 36, 37 before coming to Sydney. Totti played to 40. Buffon played to 41 before making this nonsensical move to PSG, which I'm glad, well, I guess they're regretting right now. But Luca Tony played to 39 and um, yes. top scorer. Um, Germany. So, you know, Biedler played to 38, 39, 37, 38 before he went to the MLS. They, they've they're elongating careers. They're getting value. They're trying to squeeze as much value out of out of players that they can. They're not discarding them in their early thirties anymore. And the other thing that they're doing is they're rehabbing players who, whose careers have sort of hit the skids. Um, you know, you look at the signing of Aaron Ramsey, um, Emre Shan, yeah. both going to Juventus. But they're doing. They're, you know, it's become the second chance. And obviously doing something 
in Italy that's that's helping these players. So uh, Italian football has evolved. So out of '82, where it became this this powerhouse, um, with the economic collapse, it's it's sort of reinvented itself um, into something different, and it's it's not a bad thing. It's still producing really good football, but certainly doesn't get the exposure of, of the Premier League anymore. No, I, I agree. And, and, you, and there's some very exciting things coming out in terms of young players. And I mean, uh, you go back in those, like you said, in, in those 20 years, that 20 year span, the players that went through Italy, I mean, just unbelievable talents. And they got there young. I mean, just like the, the talent, like it, you, you don't find this anymore. Cafu, uh, Serginho, um, you know, a wrong young Roberto Carlos, Inter Milan by itself. I mean, like basically handled some of the greatest players I've ever seen just come in and out of that league. But there's there is some interesting things happening now, and I, and I think it's kind of interesting to see that I think Spain went through this dominance like this for, the, for about 15 years, and now we're watching the Premiership kind of take the where where the Italian league once was, and it's simply because of the money, right? The money is there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're attracting all these players. And, and like, I mean, we're, we're about to see four teams enter into the, into the quarterfinals of the Champions League that are all going to be uh, premiership teams. But the, the funny part is, so all those teams are dominated by foreign players, you know? Uh, two of the four, I would say. <laughs> I mean, look, look at the rosters of 22. Uh, I, will, I, will venture to get, I, I will venture to guess that they're lucky that they meet a 40% threshold of UK players. Uh, ours is forty-seven percent of our twenty-five-man squad. It's forty-seven percent. That's you calculated that in advance, Steve. I I know that. That's kind of like a stat that I keep on hand. Be it like yeah. just people because that that comes up. But but you're right. Like for it's example, if you if you look at only have three foreign players. Yeah, like three. well, and if you're right, I mean, and that was part of the. But that's a Bosman ruling question, right? So that's. That brings well, up actually, a that, I mean, back then it was regulated by the individual leagues according to the, the domestic laws. Bosman obviously is encompassed by European Union rules, um, and that will have further implications for, for the UK post-Brexit, what, what the rules will be and what the entitlements will be to for bringing in foreign players. So that, that will be interesting. Yeah, I'm looking. That You're right. I think that will be interesting. But, Julian, you are right. You look at a team like Manchester City, for example, today in, in the match against Watford. Um, I don't think, I think Sterling, Sterling and Kyle Walker were the only two English players to start the match. And I think, what was on the bench? Uh, Phil Foden. Yeah. Phil Foden, a young player who probably should be getting his due, you know, you know, if Phil Foden was playing at Watford, he'd probably be starting. Well, that's like, listen, City sold Jaden Sancho to Dortmund for a, Ridicu- well, not ridiculous amounts of money. What seems to be normal money in in the world right now? Yeah. So I mean, this this match, like you know, to go back to this match, um, uh, this match was just a tremendous, like it, it, it really, it really kind of like demonstrated or displayed a fault line in football in many ways. That's why that's why I say it's the greatest match that I, I, I've ever seen. It's not just the fact that. It was incredible to watch, but what what kind of it ended and then started, 
you know, uh, it, it, it is really something to behold. Um, I'd like to end for my portion on a personal note. Um, that match, uh, I watched that match. I was 16 years old, and I watched that match with my father and my sister, who was 12 years old. And during that time, uh, International Nickel Company uh, of Canada, where my dad worked, had basically gone through a year or 13-month long strike. And they had gone back to work. And when they went back to work, they had agreed that in the summer months, uh, the, the, the factories and the refineries and everything would just shut down for two and a half, three months uh, because they basically could not afford to keep their workers, the production. They just weren't selling nickel, right? And there was a lot of fear uh, in those neighborhoods uh, well, working class neighborhoods that people would not be going back to work, that you know, Inco was going to engage in a massive layoff and perhaps maybe even leave Sudbury. And there was a lot of men who were of Italian origin in my neighborhood who were all working at Inco as, you know, basically non-skilled laborers. And they were home for that match. And for me, you know, they had nothing to do with it. And it, it was like Frank had said earlier, it was a way to restore pride. But for me, what was special about it was that we were, my, my, our house was being remodeled at the time. So it was basically in ruins and we couldn't uh, afford to kind of like completely kind of finish the house. The remodeling of, of our, our home at the time had taken almost three years because of these shutdowns. And, but I remember, you know, there was a lot of stress going on for a lot of people. And when that match turned out, these people just went mad. But what I remember the most about it on a personal level was sitting and watching this on a portable black and white TV with my father and my then 12-year-old sister, who uh, to this day really is not into sport and everything. But we remember that day because she was so invested because we would get up early in the morning and watch the matches on CBC my sister, my father, and I, and, you know, we were so invested in Italy. And it was just a, 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 a moment of beautiful solidarity between my, my mother had got to go back to work. She had to get a job, actually, because she wasn't there. But it was a beautiful moment of solidarity between me, my sister, and my father. I remember my father pulling out a, a, a bottle of wine that he had made and he poured a glass for my sister. You know, she's 12 years old to celebrate. And it was just one of those beautiful moments that, you know, that, that football marks for you, you know, and uh, I, I'll never forget that day as long as I live. Yeah, I don't think anybody of Italian origin will. Um, similar sort of thing, although it was stupid o'clock in the morning here. Uh, it was me. It was me and my dad. And mum was asleep, and my younger sisters were asleep, and I was just sitting there with my dad, and we were just we were there in silence. And it, I just remember the silence. We were just watching this, and it was just it was a nice moment. But it's sort of you you stepped outside the door after that, and the world had changed, um, especially like I said for immigrants and, and what we had experienced up until that point. Um, and it was a moment of um, acceptance for the rest of us, and it was it was. A lovely thing and this is i mean this is always close to my heart um it yeah it was very definitely a, a turning point um the other point i'll have to make is we must have been rich because we got a color television in 1977 but that's okay <laughs> well we had a color tv it's just that it was the only tv that we could watch upstairs because uh it, it was, i think it was a very warm july day it was it was something cool you know yeah good times 
Very good. Yeah. So, uh, Frank, I wanted to thank you for joining us. I know it's it's early for you, but uh, definitely thank you for coming on. We've uh, I know we've been trying for a little while now, so for us to be yeah. able to to get it to work. Distance and time difference, gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I've enjoyed listening to the pod. In fact, you're, you're churning them out with a frequency now that I'm I'm starting to struggle to catch up, but uh, it's been great. And uh, enjoying all the guests that you're having on, uh, Bridget and all the rest of them, uh, you know, getting a multiple uh, multiple views on football. It's it's a world game, so um, you know it's it's great to hear from other people all over the world. And uh, I urge others to uh, to join in as well. Don't be a stranger, Frank. Come back because we 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 need guys like you. We need voices like you on our show. Will do. Perfect. So that wraps it up for us. Uh, thank you all for listening to Bill Hopman's Curse. Uh, remember, you can check us out on Facebook or on Twitter, uh, and the podcast is pretty much available everywhere now. So thanks for listening.